for 10 years into my career, I had two kids, um, two little boys, and um, which was great. Uh, but I think that really changed my the way I viewed myself, um, the way I viewed my career and what I wanted. Welcome back, everyone, to HPG Engage, the podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Gillian Isles. How are you today? Very well, thanks. Um, First of all, thank you very, very much for um, sitting down with us today to have a quick chat about you, your career, um, how you've navigated that, and basically you and your research and what you've been getting up to. Um, First of all, Dr. Gillian Isles has a PhD in physiotherapy. And um, one thing that I've used many, many times throughout my life, playing football, running athletics, I've been in contact with many physiotherapists. So um, it'll be good to sit down with you, talk to you about that aspect of your career and then how you move from that into your research in, in osteoarthritis. But um, just to start off, um, could you just take us back, take us back to your university degree um, the area that you obviously study in physiotherapy and why why that was the choice that you made back then. Sure, and and thanks so much for having me today, Dwayne. It's an absolute pleasure to um, share my journey with you. Um, so, yes, I'm a physiotherapist um, primarily. Uh, I guess growing up, I was always a really active kid. I loved the outdoors. I loved running, um, playing sports and, you know, outdoor activities, skiing, ice skating, whatever I could get into. I absolutely loved. And I, I also really, really enjoyed learning about the human body. I really loved um, learning about physiology and biology. And so for me, it was a real natural fit to study something like physiotherapy. I studied physio at um, Sydney Uni. um, And I guess it was uh, the underlying all of this was my um, philosophy around general health and movement and really taking a, a, the most active view I possibly could in life. And yeah. that's, that's why it really suited me um, as a career. Um, and I really enjoyed physio. That was really good fun. Um, I say I'm into exercise and act physical activity, but I've never been an elite athlete by <laughs> any means. Always a bit of a weekend warrior. Yeah. And it was quite interesting um, studying at Sydney Uni. I was surrounded by all these, um, you know, people training for a um, Hawaiian Ironman or a, you know, um, the Olympic ski team or something like that. So I was very ordinary in that respect, but still that underlying philosophy of movement is medicine and that it's really important for your overall health was really what what my primary interest was. Amazing. And obviously, it obviously helps when you're moving into something like physiotherapy that you did naturally have a love for sports and have a love for the movement of the body. And that that probably obviously helped you throughout your initial undergrad experience did it yeah it certainly did and it was um it was actually i was thinking about this it was really interesting coming in as a as a little school leaver i had absolutely no idea of the scope that physiotherapy has Mm -hmm. as a career um so pretty much every area of medicine you can possibly think of of course physiotherapy is involved in that particular area so i had absolutely no idea entering in that 
I would be not just looking at the musculoskeletal uh, system, but also um, the cardiorespiratory system, neurological systems, every body system was, was, was what we were learning about. And it was really interesting. And um, I guess that's what led me to a big teaching hospital like Ron Shaw Hospital as yeah. my... Um, as my first year out as a physio and because I really wanted to um, work in some of the big areas they offered here, which were burns and um, spinal cord injury. And um, so, yeah, I was uh, really lucky to then sort of be able to work in that spinal cord injuries area as a physio um, for for many years and really enjoyed it. It's a really great area. Amazing. So, yeah, talk to me about the spinal cord injury um, aspect. What made you decide to to go into that? Did you kind of just fall on your feet there or was this a very much a an intentional choice for you to go into there talk me about that and what aspect of final, uh, spinal injury, uh, spinal cord injury, should I say, were you working in? Sure. Yeah. So I, I became interested in spinal cord injuries um, at university. And that's why I did want to come here to this hospital because there's not many hospitals that have um, spinal cord injuries at the at, as a specialty. Okay. Um, What made me interested in it, I guess, was it involved young people um, who often had an accident or some sort of incident where they've ended up with a a big traumatic injury and and ended up with um, quadriplegia and paraplegia, which are absolutely life-changing injuries, which all sounds really doom and gloom, um, but physiotherapy is actually really, really positive. what you find in spinal cord injury you can leave the doctors and the nurses to tell the patients all the really sad news which is really tragic and and really difficult but then the physio tended to be a bit more of a positive side of the exactly and the rehab and and all that sort of stuff so it was really rewarding in that way We, we could develop really positive relationships and get I I know, I get a big kick out of helping people to move again after their spinal cord injury. So, as a career and and as an area to work in, it was really amazing. Amazing people that worked in that area, had some great colleagues. So, it was was really great. And then, how long were you doing that for? Yeah, so, I I did that for almost 15 years. So, quite a long time. So, was that, was physiotherapy and spinal cord injury, was that the whole... 15 years or was just were you just doing spinal cord injury for 15 years just trying to work out did you do physiotherapy for a while and then transition into spinal cord injury or was it kind of straight into spinal cord injury when you moved moved here to north shore yeah so i worked um in every area you could possibly do so we do an intern year as a physiotherapist yeah and you basically get a taste of working in every area um which is incredible and, and really great for building skills um and then after that year, I came into the spinal injuries unit because I was lucky there was a there was a position available, and I also supplemented that um, as I was working over the years. I actually randomly also worked in um, um, childbirth education, okay. which was amazing and really interesting. So more of a health promotion type role, so uh, working with. Um, parents new parents to be and and working through the birthing process and early parenting stuff so that was a really fun job and I also did um, exercise classes for pregnant women and post um, Pilates classes for for after Um, and I did a bit of private practice work as well so I guess I I did have a few different jobs (laughs) and I guess that's what happens when you first start out in, in an area within I guess physiotherapy or in any part of healthcare, it is really important for you to to dip your toes in as many different ponds as you can, just so you can 
you can get a feel for it and then also know exactly what you really want to do. Yeah. And um, you probably also touched on that, Dwayne. It's important to know about me that I'm not very good at doing the same thing every day. (laughs) (laughs) So, I really like doing different things. That's good. Always. And and spinal injuries was like that though. It was, it's a huge area. Um, But yeah, I seem to not be able to concentrate on one thing at the one time for very long. So, that's why I did lots of different things. And um, I guess that's kind of what then led me on later to what I was um, doing and then moving into research. Yeah. So, yeah. so, you obviously were doing spinal cord injury um, for 15 years. Yep. And then you decided to move into osteoarthritis. Yes. Why was that? Yeah. So, it sounds a bit like it doesn't fit very well, but <laughs> <laughs> but in my head it does. It did. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, I guess um, for 10 years into my career, I had two kids, um, two little boys, and um, which was great, uh, but I think that really changed my – the way I viewed myself, um, the way I viewed my career and what I wanted. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as a, as a woman and as a, as a parent and as a professional person, you have to come up with a really – clever plan as to how you're going to navigate parenthood and your your career and all that sort of stuff. Um, So, for me, I juggled everything quite well and could still – I was lucky to be able to – still be able to do my job and do what I wanted to do with my kids. But what I found was I had an underlying need – to then push that career envelope. So, after the kids were a few years old, I had this overwhelming desire to really change up what I was doing and to progress my career because I always felt like I was kind of… Siloed or slightly. Siloed, but um, I I describe it as treading water while the kids were small. (laughs) Treading water. And it was fine. I was keeping my head above water, but it was, you know, I really wanted that next step. And and physio is quite… even though it's a wonderful career, it, it, there's quite a glass ceiling. So, I'd reached the top. I was senior in my area. There wasn't really anywhere I could go further yeah. in spinal cord injury without doing a further degree okay. or or moving into management, which wasn't really what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and during my work in spinal cord injuries, I had this wonderful mentor, um, Professor Lisa Harvey, who is an amazing spinal cord injuries researcher. Um, She involved me in several randomized trials um, as a clinician when I was working, and I was very inspired by that. So, I always kind of knew that I had this underlying desire to do some sort of research degree, so a higher research degree. And, um, And funnily enough, it came up. Uh, an opportunity came up in osteoarthritis. Yeah. And um, so, it kind of timed out when I was looking for something new. I wanted to work in a new area that an opportunity in osteoarthritis came up here um, at Royal North Shore and the Colling Institute. Um, The hospital was rolling out a new osteoarthritis chronic care program, which is, um, it's a very holistic program, a person-centred program to help people with osteoarthritis self-manage their condition. Yeah. And the main tenets that underpin the whole program is, comes back to exercise, physical activity, the the overall overall holistic eating, healthy, um, maintaining a healthy weight, all of those things that are really important around healthy lifestyle. 
So it really, I thought, wow, fantastic. This program really embodies what, what I'm- What you're so passionate about. Exactly. My passions of, of staying healthy, staying active, all those sorts of things. Um, so it was great. So I, I, had, um, I had an opportunity to do some evaluation of some of the patient data coming out of this new program. Um, and then that sort of turned into a, a, a PhD program. Yeah. So I did my PhD on the osteoarthritis chronic care program and people often ask me why, why osteoarthritis? Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, sorry, I probably cut you off with no, that. No, no, it's all good. Um, so osteoarthritis is quite near and dear to me. I've got several family members that have had really severe osteoarthritis um, and lived with it in the past. Yeah. So um, there's actually a really strong genetic link with osteoarthritis. So chances are I'll probably end up with some, some of it myself. Um, but I, I can also see that in practice, a lot of people suffer for a lot of years with osteoarthritis without any... Help yeah. or treatment, exactly. And we know exactly what people with osteoarthritis need. So they, they really need to keep moving. They really need to be active, keep their muscles strong. Um, and they also really need to um, maintain a healthy body weight so not get too heavy for their joints. Um, and so those things don't get implemented in clinical practice. Do you we think find there's a lack of, lack of knowledge um, yeah. with, I guess, the general public more so? Than clinicians where, yeah, you've got osteoarthritis, but a major aspect of kind kind of trying to reduce the pain is to constantly be, well, try to be as active as possible. Yeah. Obviously, it's kind of, you go around in circles because when you're in a lot of pain, you don't really want to move. But then it's kind of, I guess it's kind of teaching people, actually, this is going to, the pain may be there, but this is going to make you that little bit better. Yeah. Do you find that's a, a struggle? Definitely, definitely. So there's a few sort of factors that play into that as well. So back back in my uni days as a physio, we were basically taught, you know, someone with osteoarthritis, there's not much you can do. Just um, tell them to go away and they can have a joint replacement when their joint gets that bad. Yeah. And that's seriously what the management was like 20 years ago when I did my training. Yeah. Um, but we know now that that's, that's really not the case. That should be like a last, Yeah, that should be the last option. Usually. So joint replacement is definitely joint is definitely last option. Mm. So it's last resort right at the end of the disease. If it gets that far that people, if they need a joint replacement, then it's a really great treatment, but not everyone's going to need a joint replacement, which is, so that's one thing people have a real problem with, um, and when I say people, I mean the general public. A lot of the general public believe that they're inevitably going to have a joint replacement, which is just not true. Yeah. Um, which is a, which is good news. Why do you think? Why do you think that is? Um, why, why do you think that that's the option that people think they'll need to get? Yeah. So I think it's born out of the fact that they go along, they see their GP, they say, "I've oh, got a really sore knee. It's been sore for the last few months," and the GP says, "Well." There's not really much I can do about it. I'll send you off to the orthopedic surgeon. Um, we'll get some scans and you can go and make an appointment. And then that bill person comes up to the orthopedic surgeon. They look at the scans and they say, well, I don't know. How are you feeling? Is it that bad? Do you need your replacement yet? Or can we wait a while? Because yeah. maybe you, you might be able to 
to Put wait a little bit, bit or you can you can have a, 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 a surgery now. So it, it's quite freely offered, mm-hmm. the um, joint placement surgery. And not everybody actually needs it. And we know that people whose symptoms aren't very bad, they actually don't do very well from joint replacement surgery. So unless you're in lots and lots of pain and lots of disability, the joint replacement doesn't seem to go as well. That's what the data is telling us. Yeah, so there's that real disconnect, um, particularly in primary care, that GPs don't really know what to do with the person until they're bad enough to go and see the orthopaedic surgeon. And I think that's why people think that joint replacement is inevitable. If you, if you have osteoarthritis, you need to go and see the, the orthopaedic surgeon, which is, which is just not, not necessarily true. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, a, that's definitely a big barrier. The other really big barrier is I think over time, osteoarthritis as a disease has got a really bad reputation because it's um, – it's a wear and tear and it's an old age thing. So wear and tear meaning that if you exercise more, you'll wear out your joint more, which is also not true. Um, So that's a myth that you have to debunk with people with osteoarthritis all the time. Um, Yeah, so um, that really plays into it as well. Um, Talk to me a little bit about your research with uh, David Hunter. Yeah, yeah, so David Hunter um, works here at the Colling and at Royal North Shore Hospital. So he was the, the founder um, of the program here at North Shore, um, the Osteoarthritis Chronic Care Program. So he had this vision to implement best evidence care, person-centred, holistic, considering the whole person with their comorbidities, everything that they do in their life, what's important to them and, and try to work out how a good management program to get them to have a healthier, fitter and um, more able to manage their osteoarthritis. That was his vision. Yeah, for sure. And um, that's, that's what was sort of being delivered in this program. So for me, um, my first job was to evaluate that program and look at the outcomes and then trying, I was trying to develop, I guess, a patient profile or, or prognostic factors to, that tell us that people were going to do well from the the program or people who weren't going to do so well from the program and maybe needed to go and get their joint replaced so that became that was my PhD and then from there what I moved on to is um, more seriously thinking about how we can support health care professionals to deliver these exercise and weight loss interventions and and teach people to self-manage so it's great if they get onto an osteoarthritis chronic care program and they're very supported and all the staff know exactly what to do. Yeah. But if they're out in the community and they're seeing their, their local um, GP or primary, primary care um, provider, that they're, they're actually getting the right care. Um, so some of the, the projects we're doing at the moment, we're doing a really big e-learning program that will – be ready at the end of the year actually um, that is um, funded by the Australian um, Department of Health which is exciting um, and we're making it available to all healthcare professionals to teach them about how to actually manage osteoarthritis and give them lots of resources and tips as to what to do Um, but we're also implementing that internationally so we've got some really amazing um, colleagues overseas um, collaborators we have um, quite a large organisation of um, international researchers and clinicians that are and, and consumers that are really passionate about this. So hopefully we'll go global with the e-learning program. We're hoping we can um, 
take over the world with that one and and um, really disseminate the um, important information about how to actually treat osteoarthritis. That's so good. And in terms of the 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 non-surgical method and the treatment that you guys are doing here, what's kind of the criteria for choosing patients to get in in, in on your research? Yeah, so our criteria for patients for the program is basically anybody with hip or knee osteoarthritis. So it's really open oh, to anyone. Okay, so it's not really yeah. an age thing, it's just... No, and you know, one in five people over 45 in Australia yeah. actually have osteoarthritis. That's a lot. One in five over 45, that's crazy. That comes from the Australian... Um, Institute of Health and Welfare. I remember you actually touched on the the global burden of disease to me yeah. when we last spoke. You'd said that osteoarthritis, even though it's not deemed to be critical in terms of the need for the research and the need for treatment, it's up there in the top five. Did you say? Well, it's in the, it's like in the that? top ten. So top 10? musculoskeletal diseases come in one after mental health. Yeah. as far as burden of disease in, in the world. And I suppose it's not taken probably just as serious or maybe it's, it's it. getting like, to a level where it is being taken serious. But generally, when you have pain in some sort of joint, um, in this case osteoarthritis, a lot of people get so used to the pain that they don't really deem it as yeah. critical. That's true. Um, so that was kind of what I was almost going to say a little bit earlier as yeah. well is that it's not seen as an important disease because it doesn't kill you. Yeah. So it's, this has very similar risk factors to um, really important diseases like um, heart disease and mm-hmm. diabetes, uh, but it's not seen as, as important. However, it, it actually travels along with those diseases. So a lot of people with osteoarthritis will have those sorts of cardiovascular hypertension, things like that, that go along with their osteoarthritis as well. So those lifestyle interventions for those people are not just going to benefit their osteoarthritis, it's also going to they benefit all of their, their other um, comorbidities as well. And that's why this program, the Osteoarthritis Chronic Care Program, was so amazing because it, it's just um, it's such a whole person-centred um, approach. Um, you touched on the e-learning aspect that you're going to be hopefully spreading worldwide. Yep. But you also talked about primary care and GPs as well. Do you think there is a slight gap between what you guys are doing here and your research and what GPs are aware of in terms of the holistic point of view? You'd mentioned to me about someone um, could come into a GP with osteoarthritis pain, but then they'll also have something wrong cardiovascularly. But the likelihood of the GP addressing both and trying to figure out why are these both things happening is very unlikely at the moment. They would maybe more, nine times out of ten just concentrate on the cardiovascular side whenever there's a good chance that both of these actually are in conjunction with each other. You're having this issue because of that. Yeah. Do you feel like with e-learning that's going to be something that will be addressed that, again, we're going back to the holistic point of view aspect, mm. that everything in the body comes together as one. So yep. one aspect of you, this in this case, my example, cardiovascular, has an effect on the osteoarthritis side of, of mm, someone. Definitely. And 
Um, I mean, to give GPs all, cre- all credit due, they're mm-hmm. amazing. They they often only have very, very short appointment times with people. Yeah. And if you have someone coming in with a sore knee and chest pain or th- whose blood pressure is elevated, of course, you've you got to address blood- the elevated blood pressure before you – and obviously the chest pain um, – before you talk about their sore knee. But I guess that's what we're really trying to get across is that these things are really interlinked. They're, they often travel along together and there are definitely things that you can do that can benefit all of the, the conditions together. And that's all about exercise, healthy eating, maintaining a healthy weight, all those sorts of lifestyle things. And maybe with a GP doesn't need to be able to deliver all of these treatments themselves because yeah. they're simply not going to have time in the short appointments that they have with people. Um, but they need to know how to then direct the patient to onto someone who can actually give them some help. Yeah. And that's that's part of what we're trying to get across with the with the e-learning program and some of the other work that we're doing. Awesome. Um obviously you're doing research and it costs a lot of money. Yeah. Um for you to get paid, for your associate to get paid, for your PhD students to get paid for equipment. Yeah. What are some of the, the roadblocks that you guys are actually experiencing and what have you experienced? So, so this is a hot topic with uh, researchers. Um, there are a few issues that play into funding for people who want to do research. I think it's a bit of a shock to a lot of people that as a full-time researcher with the University of Sydney or any other university, most often that researcher actually has to find their own funding. Um, So unless you're really lucky and you've got a full-time research position, which is absolutely... Very like hard hen's to get. teeth, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Especially as an early researcher, you have to hunt around and try and find money to actually fund your program of research, and that's getting tighter and tighter and tighter um, for various reasons. One of the major funders of research in Australia is the National Health Medical Research Council, the NHMRC, um, and to actually get a grant from the NHMRC is incredibly competitive. So the absolute pinnacle for a researcher like myself um, who wants to do full-time research or even part-time research is to get what's called an investigator grant. It's like a, a fellowship and it goes for five years and it pays for your salary. But to get there, you have to have a really great track record. And when I say great track record, I mean 9% of people who put in an application for one of these things actually gets funded. So, 91% don't get funded. So, it's really hard. So, you have to make your track record look amazing to get get any funding to do the work that you want to do. Um, But the problem is with as an early career researcher like me, I'm only three years post-PhD, I'm competing with people who might have had 10 years since their PhD. So, of course, they've written lots more papers, got lots more grants, so can demonstrate lots more successful projects so that's a real problem for a lot of early career researchers and it's why a lot of people don't actually how do you you combat how do you combat that then if you're going against because obviously a lot of people you have the government grants which most researchers in the country are trying to get into one pot of money that's right and so as you said five years is the the most ideal situation um, how do you combat that? I know here at North Shore you have the North Foundation, yes, which is a which is a great foundation which helps a lot of you guys here in doing your research to to get those grants and to get um, money via philanthropy. So talk to me a little bit about that. Okay, yes, it's my absolute pleasure to talk about that. So 
Um, getting those little small pots of money to actually start a project and to generate some data is really, really important to put in the bigger grants. So for someone like me, if there's an amazing philanthropic donor that says we want to put some money into some research on osteoarthritis and it can start me off and on being able to show some outcomes and really develop up a really nice looking project for a bigger grant application that's absolutely amazing and and the north foundation are incredible they work with us to set us up with um with potential donors that might want to um fund some of our research and so that's that's a really critical role that philanthropic donors can play especially for someone like me who's so early in her career yeah, sure. um to to sort of get me started so it's a bit of a startup so i've got a new project that i've i'm very 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 grateful to have um some funding from the gergensen foundation an amazing um people who have I'm, I'm kind of speechless when I say it because I think it's so amazing. <laughs> it's a it's a new project. We're trying to reduce um, the amount of arthroscopy that's done in Australia. So arthroscopy is really recommended against in osteoarthritis. You really shouldn't be giving somebody with knee osteoarthritis and arthroscopy. Um, and we know that and we've known it for a long time, but we still have 30,000 a year happening in our health system. Explain to people listening what, what exactly is that? So a knee arthroscopy um, for in the presence of osteoarthritis, usually go in with some cameras and some instruments and do a bit of a clean out and a tidy up. Like and scraping off. Yeah. yeah, snip, yeah, yeah. So you hear people say, oh, I've just, I, had my, I had my knee cleaned out and they wash it out and, and clean it up a bit inside. And what we know is that's really not, not effective um, and in fact could actually cause the person harm. So we really shouldn't be seeing people with osteoarthritis having those procedures. But Is we're that still procedure good for any particular reason? Oh, it's very, very good if you have a, a flap of cartilage that's making okay. your knee lock and you need that fixed, okay. for sure. So, but if it's osteoarthritis, it's not recommended? No, okay. that's it. And it's very clear in the clinical guidelines um, and, the, and Medicare makes it really clear that you shouldn't be billing for those sorts of items for people with osteoarthritis. But like I said, we've, we've got about 30,000 a year that still happen in people who have osteoarthritis. So um, the Gergensen Foundation um, are teaming up with us to develop amazing. a project. Yeah, it is amazing. Um, to um, develop an intervention to try and stop those um, procedures from happening before they do in Australia. So that's some really exciting new work. That's exciting. Mm. Um, I think touching back on the freelance the philanthropic um, aspect of things i think it's so important that people are aware of how expensive doing a lot of this research research is before i really started working in this healthcare space and understanding mm. how research work how clinical research works um outside the pharma side of things um i didn't realize how much money is needed because uh, when you're out on the outside you're just assuming this is just getting done and like any other corporate company they, you make money and then you pay your staff but it's not really like that and when it comes to like yourself in terms of your fellow and doing your research it really is a grind every if you're lucky every five years just to get a paycheck and just for you to do the research and then another grind again just to get money to ensure that everyone else in your staff gets paid that you have enough money for your equipment and all of that and I think it's such an important important aspect of your role that 
people should really be aware of. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, it makes it sound really awful. But <laughs> <laughs> I was about to cry. No, uh, the pressure. No, um, it, it, is, it is like that. That's the reality. It, mm. it is. I mean, really in Australia as a researcher, it's a privilege to work in research, um, which I really understand because you know, we're basically paid to pursue our interests and what what we want to do. But, of course, what we want to do is actually improve the healthcare system. For, yeah, exactly, 100%. so that we improve people's lives. So, um, yeah, it, yeah, I don't know how we fix the problem besides pouring a bit more money into the yeah. research sector. <laughs> exactly. um, but, yeah, so philanthropies amazing um i also got a really uh, a nice little grant from the university um clinical trial center as well which was amazing for this project too mm. so putting those little pots of money at the start of a project to build something really fantastic and big um Don't is kind of way, what you have to do yeah. yeah it's really important and then that leads me to what are your hopes um for the future of healthcare and the future of your research and the overall future of um, osteoarthritis. Okay, so talk to me. So <laughs> I'll start with osteoarthritis, and then I'll move on to to health in general. Yeah. Um. So my hopes for osteoarthritis is really that we find next time we do a really big study to see what sort of care people are receiving for osteoarthritis in Australia, that we can say, oh, look at that. Most people are getting what they they actually need and deserve for their osteoarthritis, because at the moment we know that. Now, 30 to 40% might receive what they need. Yeah. And the rest, and 60% of people are just not receiving the care that they, they need. So, that's my big hope for osteoarthritis is that, you know, in the next five years, we find that that story's really turned around and that people have really offered that best evidence care for osteoarthritis, starting with support for self-management, exercise, and, and weight control. Okay. Sounds really simple, but getting that working and, and implemented into our healthcare system, that's that would just be amazing. So yeah. that would be my vision for osteoarthritis. For healthcare, I think we've got a long way to go in realising that we need to be really interprofessional and interdisciplinary in the way we treat chronic diseases. So as we spoke about earlier, we know there's a lot of shared risk factors between osteoarthritis and things like heart disease and diabetes. And when just not harnessing well enough those risk factors and also the lifestyle management that we can use to improve all of those things together in a really holistic way. So that would be my next vision for the health care system overall is that as health professionals, we get much better at talking to each other and working out what each other do and knowing when we can pull each other in to help our patients. So important. And re really important and just and work together. It's an ecosystem at the end of the day. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a huge issue and we know that is that a lot of health professions don't know what each other do. So that sounds crazy, but it's true. Um, yeah, and then to be able to actually de deliver that care in a really um, cost-effective and coordinated way, keeping the patient at the very centre of everything that we do um, and trying to view a person as a whole person, not just trying to eke out the same treatment to everybody but really tailor it to people's individual needs and, and I think we need that as a healthcare system. I think that's really, really important. 
Amazing. Thank you very much, Dr. Julian. Um, but just to finish off, obviously, HP Engage, the podcast, um, the company is called HP Engage or HPG. We're a healthcare professionals group, so we recruit across all aspects of healthcare. So just to finish off, do you have any tips and suggestions for anyone who may be thinking about taking a similar career path to you and how they can actually navigate that? Sure, absolutely. So my first tip is... Um, Although it does sound a bit of doom and gloom with the, the funding and research and, and how difficult and competitive it is, it is still an amazing career because you get to pursue your passions, which is incredible. So you get to do what you love every day um, and that privilege is amazing. Uh, my next tip would be if you're working full-time and trying to do a PhD and juggling a family, that's probably not a great way to do it. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what I did. I did a part-time PhD over six years and it was yeah. quite arduous and probably not something I'd recommend. And, you know, my my eight-year-old, when I finished my PhD, said, oh, great, mum's got a PhD and now I'm getting my mum back. Like, oh. <laughs> uh, that's not so good. Yeah, so I probably would recommend if you can actually do it, try and do your, your PhD full-time, focus on it, yeah, and then, and then move on. And my other tip would be if you're thinking about doing a PhD or a Master's of Research, make sure what, you, your work, what you're doing in your work counts and that it's, it's publishable so that you then start developing your track record. Awesome. And when you, when you get your degree, you've got those publications and you, you've got a, a head start on the, on the start line. Amazing. Hmm. Dr. Julian, thank you very, very much for sitting down with me today. It's been an absolute very pleasure. I um, really enjoyed your career progression, what you've been doing. And, and yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks very much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure.